secular humanism has captured the imagination of many Canadians today. And it's something that Christians should be aware of and familiar with as we live amongst people who have this point of view. Now, my prayer is at the seminar is to help all of you gain a better understanding of where people are coming from so that we as Christians can be better ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So with that, let me open up our time in prayer and then we'll begin. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this privilege of representing Jesus Christ to a world that doesn't know you, in particular here in our nation, where people uh, don't see you at all in any way affecting their lives. And we pray as we look into this subject, you help us to be better informed of where people are coming from, from the secular humanistic point of view, and to encourage us as well uh, to engage people in conversation and to share with them the good news of Jesus. Pray that you would open up our hearts and minds uh, towards this topic tonight. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to go through a presentation on secular humanism. And that'll last for about 40 minutes. And then towards the end, uh, we'll have, I'll open it up for uh, discussions, uh, questions you may have, and try to answer them and try to maybe have a back and forth exchange of ideas and comments as well. Okay, again, secular humanism, me, myself, and I, secular humanism and the modern self. So we're going to be looking at four basic areas tonight. First one, we're going to look at what is secular humanism and why it is important. Why should Christians and the Christian church care about this belief system? We're going to look at two broad secular worldviews that we're going to be looking at, modernism and postmodernism. We're going to be looking at the rise of the modern self and personal identity. And these are particular outworkings of secular humanism that have become very prominent over the past few years. And as we look at these things, we're also going to be looking at some of the major influencers of secular humanism uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, especially individuals who have shaped uh, this, this worldview and also shapes uh, modern selfhood and personal identity as well. And then finally, we're gonna be looking at how should the church respond in a selfie world, in the secular humanistic world that we are in. Okay, what is secular humanism and why is it important? Here we have a photo of the Eiffel Tower in Paris representing the nation of France. And France has played a major role in the development of secular humanism in the Western world. And France is very proud to be a secular nation and a secular uh, culture. But before we talk about... Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, a little bit of a technical glitch here. Okay, are we on? Not working? Okay, hang on. Sorry, sorry, uh, everyone. This all worked in rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. I think we're going now. Okay. All right. Now I think you can see the Eiffel Tower. So sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. This is the first time I've done a, um, a presentation like this on Zoom. Usually I see people in, in the audience and I have a monitor in the back. So this is all new to me. So sorry for that little glitch. Not, not 100% uh, used to it yet, but we shall. So there's the Eiffel Tower. And as I said, representing secular France. But before we talk about secularism, I think it's important for us to understand what is worldview, because I'm going to be using that term quite a bit. Simple definition of a worldview is that it's a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. Now, secular humanism, I'm sorry, a worldview, everyone has one, whether people can articulate it or not. And that worldview affects how people think, believe, act, and react to the world around them. A worldview helps us to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is false and what is true. What is the good life? How should I live? What will make me truly happy and fulfilled? Secular humanism and Christianity each have a worldview, and we shall see that both of them are quite different. So what is secular humanism? Simple definition of it is a way of life and thought that is pursued without reference to God or to religion. It is secular in that it is a life without the supernatural. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that secular humanists are atheists. Many do believe in God, but they believe that he is not involved in the operation of the universe or in our lives. And thus, they live life without him. It's humanistic because it sees human beings as the measure of all things and masters of their own destiny, rather than God as their master and Lord. So some of the major characteristics of secularism. This world or this universe is all that there is. There's nothing more. It denies the transcendent and the supernatural. To the secular humanistic worldview, there are no spirits, there are no angels, there are no demons, there's no heaven or hell. And even if there were such things, they have no relevance to what goes on in the physical universe. There are like two domains that never intersect. Another characteristic or belief of secular humanism is that human beings have inherent value. Now, secular humanists have different definitions of what constitutes a human being. I would say that most of them are pro-abortion, thus they deny unborn, they deny the fact that unborn babies are human beings, or that they are, but they're not yet persons, or they're somehow pre-human. But for most people who hold to the secular humanistic viewpoint, human beings are important. And this is one area where secular humanism and Christianity share some common ground. And lastly, another broad aspect of secular humanism is that it says truth is absolute and truth is relative. Now, those are two opposing contradictory views within the sphere of secular humanism, and we'll examine that uh, a little bit shortly. Okay, so where did secular humanism come, come from? What's its origin? I think its origin or the signs of it coming into being come 
down to what happened in the Garden of Eden. And let me read, or let us read Genesis 3, chapter, uh, verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we see some of the deceptive things that Satan is saying in that last verse of that passage. Let's take a look at them. First, he says, you will not surely die. Now, Satan is saying that if you disobey God, you will not die. But this deception always also carries with it a little bit of a falsehood that humans can overcome anything, even including death. You will surely not die. And there have been things within the secular humanistic movement, things such as life extension projects. There's been efforts to lengthen the age of human beings on a dramatic scale. Uh, I think back in the 60s and 70s, there was this trend or fad of cryogenic suspension. People who would die of uh, an incurable disease and they asked that their bodies be preserved cryogenically and to be thawed out later on when a cure for that particular disease came about. And there's also a movement called transhumanism where people believe they can cheat death by somehow embedding the human consciousness in something else like machines, for example, and therefore live forever. Satan also said to the woman or to Eve, you will be like God. And that speaks to man's ability to determine his own destiny and to create his own reality. And we'll talk more about that uh, later on, but it does give that sense or that hint of self-godhood. And then finally, Satan says, if you do this, you will be like God knowing good and evil. And thus you will know truth and falsehood. And this is something that speaks to man's ability to discover universal truth to his own intellect, or even to create his own truth and not rely upon the revelation of God for real truth, true truth. So let's look now at those two basic and broad aspects of secular humanism, modernism and postmodernism, and see how they progressed in the Western world. So let's take a look at modernism. Uh, like the definition of secular humanism I gave to you earlier, modernism rejects the spiritual and spiritual for, um, spiritual authority. Well, let me back up a bit. Modernism is a type of secular humanism that developed during the Enlightenment era. Now is a period of history between 1650 to 1800 uh, in the Western world that brought a rash and, a, and a large amount of new ideas that challenged the status quo at the time. And particularly it challenged spiritual authority or the authority of the church. So modernism has typically not only rejected the supernatural, but it also rejected those who promote it. And thus many secularists throughout the ages have opposed organized religion and any authority that it has over people's lives. It embraces, modernism embraces the idea of human progress towards a utopia 
created by human reason, science, and technology. So serious secular humanists believed that by rejecting the supernatural, embracing naturalism, and having faith in the human intellect, human civilization would flourish into a golden era. Now, this utopian view has kind of fallen out of favor in recent years, but it was a serious view held at the start of the Enlightenment era and the subsequent revolutions that followed, such as the French Revolution. Modernism also believes quite strongly on individual human rights, autonomy, and human goodness. So human rights and autonomy are a staple of modernism and have served to give this uh, type of secular worldview moral respectability, so to speak, making it attractive to people who have rejected the moral framework of religion, but they want to retain some kind of moral foundation. Modernism, modernism holds to the principles of harmony and order. And because of this, it holds to the absolute truth. So modernism believes that the universe is ordered and it's harmonious. And from this flows predictable uh, and knowledge, knowable uh, laws of nature. And because the universe has rational order, it can be understood by science and it can be mastered by technology. So let's look at postmodernism. Postmodernism came onto the scene after modernism suffered some setbacks in the 19th century and especially the 20th century. However, it is not a new kind of worldview in the sense that it did exist as a dominant worldview in other cultures, such as in Central and Eastern Asia, even before modernism itself developed in the West during the Enlightenment period. Let's take a look at some of postmodernism's characteristics. One is that it rejects the idea that there is a true single worldview. There can be many worldviews and to a postmodernist, all of them are valid and useful. There is one, more than one way of looking at reality according to postmodernism. Postmodernism rejects the concept of an objective world. They say there's no such thing as an objective world. Everyone perceives things differently and thus the universe takes on different kinds of concepts. Another big characteristic of postmodernism is that it rejects the concept of absolute or universal truth. To them, truth is relative. You have your kind of truth and I have my kind of truth and never the two shall meet in some cases. In fact, some postmodernists roundly reject or very strenuously object to absolute truth because they see it as a means of trying to coerce or enslave people to their kind of thinking. So they see it as, a, as some kind of a power game, uh, the whole concept of absolute truth. Postmodernism is also characterized by radical pragmatism. And in some ways that has replaced um, absolute truth in their worldview. So with radical pragmatism, it doesn't matter if something is true or false, or right or wrong, just as long as it works. And if it just works, then it must be right or it must be okay. And finally, one of the major characteristics of postmodernism, and one of its biggest attractions actually, um, is that you create your own reality and your own morality as well, your own moral framework. So this is, this characteristics and others 
really different from the modern's concept that we talked about uh, earlier. But the main appeal of this one, that you create your own reality, is that it provides the ultimate form of autonomy and freedom. The ability to create our own reality means that, in fact, we can become like gods. And this is part of Satan's deception in Genesis 3, verse 5. You will become like God. So why is secular humanism important? Why is this an important subject for the church to grapple with? Firstly, I would say that people just don't know or understand the Christian worldview. Secular humanism is now the dominant worldview of Canada, and it guides much of our nation's institutions and people. Um, the average Canadian used to know about God, Jesus, the Bible, uh, basic Christian morality, uh, even if they never accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And the average Canadian used to respect what the church stood for, but today many view the Christian faith with great hostility. Christians need to understand it in order to make sure that their worldview is not absorbed into, into secular humanism because of its appeal. Secular humanism appeals to our fleshly sinful nature. I mean, who doesn't want to live in, this, in the physical realm only? We see it and we experience it immediately. The spiritual realm is often difficult to grasp and it comes with this morality that uh, many people find hard to live with. Besides, becoming like a god sounds so fulfilling. And it's very easy for Christians to fall into this trap of letting secular humanism becoming their dominant worldview. So, and Christians must understand secular humanism in order to prepare themselves to avoid it at all costs. And finally, if the church is to reach Canada for the gospel, of Jesus, it must understand where many Canadians are coming from. We need to understand where people are coming from in order to critique their secular view of things, where it's inconsistent, how and how it fails uh, human beings. And by knowing where they're coming from and knowing about this worldview, Christians can show how the Christian gospel can meet the hopelessness that they feel and the, the needs that they feel need to be met in ways that secularism cannot. So it's important for Christians to have at least a basic understanding of this dominant worldview. All right, now we move into uh, this broad area of secular humanism. We looked at modernism, we looked at postmodernism. We've seen how it has really enraptured much of the Western world uh, for, for a long period of time. Now we're gonna look at the whole topic of the self, the modern self, and personal identity. And we're gonna do that by looking at six key figures over the past 300 years who have shaped the secular worldview quite a bit, and whose influence has greatly impacted what we see in the West today, especially when it comes to the development of modern self. The first person we're gonna look at is a guy by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Now, Rousseau was an 18th century Genevan philosopher who specialized in political philosophy, which influenced much of the Enlightenment period, as well as the French Revolution, although he died about 11 years before it happened. We're going to look at two of his key beliefs. 
One is people are basically good at birth. One is corrupted by society and external forces. So to Rousseau, it's people aren't bad. It's the, the environment. It's their social institutions that are corrupt and promote human wickedness. Now, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor said about Rousseau that he believed the, the original impulse of nature is right, but the effect of a depraved culture is that we lose contact with it. So basically, Rousseau saw human beings as without sin, and society and culture were the main sources of humanity's problems. And many people today share those base, that basic premise. Uh, I mean, how many times have you heard someone famous on the news or on a TV show or on social media, or someone that you even know say something to the effect that, I believe that people are basically good. It's just bad influences that corrupt them. The answer is more education or eliminating poverty and so forth. But the Rousseauian view is directly contrary to the Christian worldview on this point where the scriptures say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3, 23. And as well in Romans 3, Paul writes, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away that they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So the Bible says we're not as good as we think we are. But... The Rousseauian view is widely popular, popular uh, amongst many secular thinking people today. And a second uh, belief of uh, Rousseau was that the individual is most authentic when acting out in public those desires and feelings that characterize his inner psychological life. So Rousseau saw emotions, sentiment, and aesthetic considerations as forming an, an important part of ethical acti activity. So he saw people at their best when they act in accordance with their nature. To him, this was authentic personhood and the ground of ethics. Again, he saw society as corrupting people and disabling people from acting out their authentic desires and feelings. And if people could just be themselves, the world would be a much better place because then human goodness would come out. And again, this philosophy or ideology, uh, this belief of Rousseau is again, a major driver behind many of the concepts we see in our secular culture today, where it's that inner voice uh, that dominates and has to overcome uh, the outside forces that are trying to corrupt us. So that's, that's sort of Rousseau's worldview. And again, something that really shaped secularism in the West that we see even today. Another person we're gonna look at is Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche was a German 19th century philosopher who had a very major impact on modern philosophy. And Nietzsche popularized the concept of the death of God. Some of you may have heard that. I, I vaguely remember years ago, decades ago, when Time Magazine had on its cover, Is God Dead? Picking up on Nietzsche's philosophy. And in his book, The Gay Science, this was one of the main ideas of his, that God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. And in his book, The Gay Signs, he writes a parable of a madman who rushes into a market square filled with people who don't believe in God. He rushes in shouting, I see God, I see God. 
but he's mocked by the, the crowd who think he's crazy. And this madman declares that we have killed God. We are his murderers. And then the mad, mad, sorry, the madman wonders aloud, what do they do now that they have, quote, unchained this earth from its sun? He muses to himself that he's come too early and that these atheists don't understand his message. Well, Nietzsche's point in this parable is that he sees the consequences of the secularism of enlightenment which removed God from the scene, but also did not provide a foundation for reality, meaning, and, and morality. So the philosophers, to Nietzsche, the philosophers of the enlightened failed to do this, and they failed to see the consequences of their secular beliefs. And he also saw that theism, that is belief in God, provided a broad framework upon which society could be built, establishing systems of reality, meaning, and morality, that would bind everybody together. But secularism takes away that foundation, but the enlightenment failed to provide a new one. So to Nietzsche, killing God means one has to bear the, res the responsibility and the consequences of being God yourself, providing your own systems of reality and morality. Now, Nietzsche recognized that Christianity had provided such a a metaphysical and moral framework. And by metaphysical, I mean a, frame, a framework that describes reality. But he was not sympathetic at all to the Christian faith. Not only did he simply, not simply disbelieve Christianity, he also found it morally repugnant. And he was highly suspicious of any claims that um, religion uh, conveyed and any, any concept of absolute moral truth as well. Now, Nietzsche was not a nihilist. He kind of had uh, a gospel hope, so to speak, uh, as he wrote, for one thing is needful that a human being should attain satisfaction with himself, whether it be by means of this or that poetry and art. So he did have a kind of hope and he saw freedom as real and something that people should strive for in order to be fulfilled. And freedom for him was to be freed for self-creation. And it's this quest of personal satisfaction that Nietzsche saw where human beings found true meaning and fulfillment, what it means to truly live. So in his philosophy, he rejected religion, absolute morality and truth, but instead embraced self-creation and personal satisfaction. And really those are forms, I'm sorry, uh, forms of beliefs that we find in our own culture as well. That's sort of his legacy. Next person we're gonna look at who had a major influence in uh, secular humanism, especially in the 20th century, was, of course, Karl Marx. He was a 19th century German philosopher, economist, and social revolutionary, who was famous for his ideology known as Marxism that spread around the world uh, over the 20th century. Now, although Marx is considered a political figure, he and, and the, develop, the developer of a political system, he had some key philosophical beliefs that formed the bedrock of Marxism and those beliefs found themselves into our popular culture even today. So for Marx, human uh, history, I'm sorry, history and human beings are driven and shaped by material forces and conditions. So Marx saw these material conditions, especially economic ones, as the driving conditions of modern, I'm sorry, of human destiny. Marx lived during the time of the Industrial Revolution, 
where new technologies were coming forth in manufacturing and production and were changing uh, Western society in very, very dramatic ways. Not only in economic and labor terms, but also in human structures, organizations, and human relationships. And as these technologies of the industrial revolution remained, remade Western society, it also remade, remade humanity. In that humanity's identity was caught up or was being caught up in these new material forces. To Marx, this is what made people people, not some transcendent spirituality or some morality given by an outside deity. As economic forces change, as technology change, so did human society and human nature changed. So in the view of Marx, human nature and identity are flexible and plastic. They are shaped by different kinds of forces. Marx also saw in his ideology that politics and history are one long story of oppression. And this is one of the central tenets of Marxism. Now the big story or the meta-narrative of Marxism is that there was always a dominant powerful group subjugating and oppressing a marginal group. And this marginal group has to rise up against their oppressors by engaging in various forms of revolution. But in Marxism, this is a continuous battle. The injustice never ends. The revolution must always carry on, even if the oppressed succeed in overthrowing their oppressors. And we see this concept of oppressor against the oppressed in today's society in such things as critical theory and critical race theory. And it's a revolution that's going on even now, being fought using tools of shaming, fear, and intimidation in places, especially uh, social media. And to Marx, everything gets politicized. He rejected the concept that you can have non-political society or non-political human entities, <clears throat> organizations such as the Boy Scouts, the local school, even the family. To him, all aspects of our society are part of a political class struggle and structure themselves accordingly. And if you're paying attention to news and what's going on in our culture, you'll see that there's a lot of politi politicalization of things that normally people don't think of as political. But this is the one of the central tenets of Marxism. All right, on to Mar from Marx onto Sigmund Freud. Now, Freud is probably the most well-known psychotherapist today, and he has been for decades. Even to those who have never studied or read psychology, most people would know his name instantly. And today, uh, for, and for the past decades, his theories have demonstrated to be lacking in factual evidence and have been criticized for many years by many psychologists. However, Freud's main ideas have taken root in our Western culture and have thrived to influence the, the worldview of many, many Westerners. So what were some of his key beliefs and ideas? One is he felt that the goal of human existence is to be happy and to live a good life. Nothing unusual about this uh, characteristic of his worldview as it was also shared by Nietzsche and other intellectuals who came before Freud. But, but what he contributes to the discussion is that he felt the key to happiness is sexual fulfillment. It is central to what it means to be a self. Um, 
In his worldview, true happiness is sexual satisfaction. And sexuality to him is the most important part of being human. Our sexuality defines our human existence. Now, when it comes to religion, like a lot of his other contemporaries and people before him, uh, he saw religion as oppressive to human happiness. And he saw it as, as keeping people as immature children. Um, so he saw religion as an infantile condition that only produces uh, a mental deficiency and emotional immaturity. But what Freud does is give this view of religion some scientific respectability and therefore makes it a bit more plausible in the minds of the common people. And today there are many secular humanists, not all, but many who regard religion as just that, an immaterial child's pastime or some kind of psychological condition. But Freud differed from Rousseau in this regard. He viewed humans as dark, violent, and irrational. And that laws and customs in our society are necessary to keep a sense of order. Um, because he saw that unrestrained sexual activity would bring chaos to society. So to Freud, humans are inherently bad. That's something that the Bible teaches, very interesting. And in his essay, Civilization and Its Discontents, he outlines how sexual satisfaction is impossible to achieve in an absolute or lasting sense without some kinds of restrictions being imposed by a strong civilization in order to bring, or to order to bring and maintain order. As Freud wrote, religion has clearly performed great services for human civilization. It has contributed much towards the taming of the asocial instincts Yet to him, religion was not an option. But then neither was the death of God that Nietzsche warned about, which had no framework of order and restraint to replace God. Now Freud proposed some other alternative outlets to try to achieve human happiness, such as sexual expression in the arts, but he admitted that none of them would bring true satisfaction. Now, Sigmund Freud can be considered as the founding father of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. But, he, but even he saw that sexual freedom could not be achieved to the, to the highest level that he was looking at. But his contribution to our present culture, besides the sexual revolution, was to take the psychology of humanity and sexualize it, since he saw it as the most important thing. So to Freud, our physical being at its core is sexual. And thanks to Freud, not only does our culture, our secular culture, embrace the importance of sexual freedom, it also sees sex as a central part of human nature and identity. And this is his contribution to defining the modern self that we see today. Now we're gonna talk a little bit about a guy by the name of Wilhelm Wright. Now you've probably never heard of this guy. I hadn't either when I was researching this seminar. But he does play an important role in all, on all of this. Reich was an Australian, I'm sorry, Austrian medical doctor and a psychoanalyst in the first half of the 20th century. And he was a contemporary of Freud's. He, uh, he, knew, he knew Sigmund Freud while he was a student. But Reich's politics and his worldview were Marxist. And he attempted to explain a problem that many Marxists faced at the time in the first half of the 20th century. And the problem was, why wasn't the working class, the proletariat, rising up against their oppressors 
the middle class bourgeoisie in the different nation states. You know, Marxist revolution wasn't happening across Europe, for example. Reich was looking for psychological reasons why this was so, and thus he looked to Freud for some answers. First of all, he saw sexual morals as uh, tools to maintain the status quo and keep the working class in line. So he viewed it as a way for the bourgeoisie to enforce a kind of sexual oppression uh, on, the, on the working class, the poorer class. And he viewed the patriarchal family as a unit of oppression that taught an oppressive system of sexual morality that made children compliant and submissive to authority figures. So there he saw that's one of the reasons why Marxism wasn't taking off. His idea shifted the nature of oppression from economic class warfare to a type of psychological warfare rooted in the sexual. And this, gave, this gives the rise to things such as, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> victimhood becoming more prominent. And Reich saw this kind of psychological oppression um, that, that was becoming more and more, more and more prevalent and more and more realistic. And it's entered, that kind of oppression has entered into our society today. An example would be um, the refusal of a baker to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. This refusal today is not seen as a type of economic hardship for a homosexual couple, but a psychological one where the sense of dignity and self-worth is threatened. And this in turn gives the belief <clears throat> that sexual identity and practice are no longer things relegated to the private domain. There are now very public forms of resistance against oppression. Finally, we're gonna look at a person by the name of uh, Simeon de Beauvoir, pardon my, pardon my French. She was a leading mid-century, 20th century feminist who published a landmark work, The Second Sense in, Second Sex, sorry, in 1949. Now her form of feminism was unique at the time as it developed along more philosophical and psychological lines. She developed a form of feminism that became detached from biological reality, more rooted in the psychological. But Beauvoir's main thesis was that gender is psychological while sex is biological. And she became a pioneer of what we see in the progressive movement today when it comes to the division between gender and sex. For her, biology is ultimately a form of tyranny. And she saw the reproductive process as an obstacle to women's fulfillment. To her, the body is something to be overcome, and she saw it as a type of authority that needed to be rejected. But she was entering an age where her dreams of biological elimination or liberation were coming true thanks to 20th century technology, artificial birth control, hormone therapy, plastic surgeries, etc., would come to give women as well as men the ability to transcend their bodies and become whoever they wanted to be from a sexual perspective. And what was once only a possibility in theory is now become a reality that is firmly entrenched in the imaginations of many people today. So that's a very brief overview of how these six individuals have, individuals have managed to influence and create the characteristics of secular humanism we see today. 
Okay. Now I see our time is slipping. So I'm going to have to uh, skip those slides here and I may come back to them later depending if we have some time. But I want to get to the whole point of what, do, what does the church do with secular humanism? Where do we go from here? And as we see, it is a very, very um, powerful worldview. Well, what does the church need to do? Well, the church basically needs to challenge secular humanism. Why? Because it's challenging the gospel of Jesus. It's trying to usurp the place Jesus, Jesus should have in the hearts of men and women. And the church can't be passive in the face of that kind of opposition. There's a spiritual warfare going on and in the West. Secular humanism is a major manifestation of that warfare. So here are some of the ways the church can challenge it. First off, we have to rec recognize that secular humanism is another gospel, but in the long run, it leads to a dead end for people. It, it portrays itself as good news and gives the good life without God. But secular humanism, like other false gospels, promises much, but delivers little. And, we gotta, and the church must also see how easy it is to fall into the traps of secular humanism. And unfortunately, there's a lot of churches today that have done that, and they promote a secular gospel instead of the gospel of Jesus. Another thing, too, to challenge secular humanism is that when you're with your secular friends, you know, ask them to describe their worldview and their belief system. And as they do, ask them a lot, ask them lots of challenging questions. Ask respectfully where they're coming from and don't assume anything. Ask them in a way to get them to rethink their secular beliefs and where they might fall short. An example would be, for example, uh, ask them to see what, or ask them what the concept of reality is. If they believe that you can truly can create your own reality, how does that work when there's other competing realities around? Another way of challenging secular humanism is that we need to understand our scriptures well as Christians and make sure that we are incorporating the Bible in our lives. Christians are best at challenging secular humanism by becoming maturing disciples of Jesus Christ because maturing disciples are better equipped to challenge secularism, defend the gospel, and make the gospel attractive to others as well. Now, truth is central to the Christian worldview and to the gospel, and Christians must always proclaim it and always defend it. Jesus stressed that he is the truth, and without truth, human life really is endangered by falsehoods and relativism. And the church can't compromise on the truth in order to get along with the rest of the world. But the church must uphold the truth, be it spiritual truth, moral truth, or physical truth. Because the absence of truth has dramatic consequences for human development, human flourishing, and salvation. Christians must not react to fear, anger, or despair, but instead be courageous, hopeful, holy, and loving. So what's happening to our society is not new. It's been there, it's been developing in the background over the centuries as we have just seen. It's just that many of, the, of these ideas are no longer confined to the university classroom. They have entered into the mainstream of our culture on many different levels and in ways that we've never seen before. But we must not react as if there's something surprising. Therefore, we must exercise hope, hope in our Lord and be courageous in the face of opposition. We must walk in the holiness that God calls us to and to love others, even our secular humanistic friends, 
as the scriptures teach us. And finally, Christians must understand that their identity is ultimately in Christ and not in their feelings or in their sexuality. As Christians, are we sure that our identity is solely and ultimately, not, say, not necessarily solely, but ultimately in Jesus and not in our feelings, not in our ethnic backgrounds, not in our sexuality, not in our skin color, not in our friendship groups, or not in our profession. Now, these things are important, and they make up a part of who we are. But ultimately, what is our real primary identity, where our hearts and minds uh, and allegiances submit to first? It is in Jesus Christ, and Christians must always look at themselves and ensure that they are putting Jesus first and that he is the one who defines them. All right, this concludes my presentation on secular humanism. It's a very vast subject and we've only looked at the surface of things. And I'm hopeful that the seminar will shed some light on this subject and I would encourage you to dig a little bit deeper into it um, from the things that we've looked at this evening. So now I wanna take some time to move on to a time of questions and discussions of what we've talked about. So I think Matthias is going to Madam Chen. Okay. Anybody want to turn their microphones on? Yeah. And, and have a question they want to, we don't have any typed ones, but if you have a, a question you want to ask, just turn on your mic and bring any of the topics you want to discuss relate to the subject, please feel free. Golden silence out there. Hi, it's uh, Randy. Can you hear me? Oh, hang on. I'm turn up the volume here. Yes? It's Randy. I have a question. Um, this is an amazing, amazing uh, <clears throat> presentation. Thank you so much for all the work you've done. It's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, and there's lots of, lots of things from these old people who uh, resonate. But so, given that our identity is ultimately in Christ, um, how would you react to a person who says he is a either a gay Christian or a same-sex attracted Christian? Is that possible to say? Yeah, that's a question that, thanks for the question, Randy. Uh, that's a question that has been asked on um, by many people and it's been discussed at length. Um, I think it's more accurate and proper to say that one is a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction or uh, is a Christian who struggles or is tempted to live the gay lifestyle. But to automatically say that you're a, a gay Christian or a same-sex Christian almost implies that you are you're trying to make Christianity legitimize those kinds of lifestyles. And that by saying that, you're also identifying yourself that you're wedding, wedded a portion of yourself to that kind of belief or to that kind of lifestyle. Um, I know some Christians, very sincere Christians who would disagree with that, but I think it's, it's what should I say, not in good form. And I think it sends the wrong message of where uh, the Christian faith stands on those kinds of issues and where disciples of Jesus Christ need to put their focus on. Um, I think it puts it maybe unfairly too much on one's sexual identity as opposed to one's identity in Christ. 
this it's a contentious it is a contentious issue sorry one one final one other question it's unrelated um I wonder if the secular humanist label or categorization is these days too narrow. Um, there might be a lot of postmodernists who don't believe that humans are central. They don't believe mm -hmm. that we are, especially radical environmentalists, they don't believe that we are, have any more value than a slug or yeah. potentially, I don't know, if they say this about a tree or a rock or something, but uh, mm. so is, is that, I mean, certainly radical or certainly environmental. Well, there's an awful lot of environmentalist stuff that sounds um, dominant in this current society. Some of which we can agree with as Christians, but some of which seems to be um, based on the fact that we are not um, the crown of creation. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, People from uh, environmental groups, uh, animal rights groups, don't see humans as all that important. In fact, some of them see humans as a threat to the whole planet. And in a way, they're not secular humanists. You could call them secular anti-humans, humanists. Uh, they don't like people very much. Now, I don't know how they square their own existence with that kind of belief system. I've often wondered does a secular anti-humanist do the right thing and euthanize themselves, for example, and make the planet a better place? I don't know, I don't know leading by example. But that's a, it's, it, that kind of message is, is full of hopelessness. I mean, what's the point of living if humans are so bad and there's no hope for us? And again, this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in, where yes, humans are valuable, and that yes, humans are bad, but Christ has come to redeem us. And ultimately, in the future time, we will be free of our badness, of our sinful nature. So that, that's, those, are, those are good points, man. Thank you. Yes, is there a... Just ask to turn your screen share off. Oh, turn my screen share. Okay. Bear with me here. Okay. All right, any other, uh, any other questions or points of discussion? Any other, any other questions? Nothing, my goodness, I thought there'd be all kinds of people questioning me and maybe disagreeing with me and have a real lively topic going. I have, I have a request, it's not really a question. Yes. Um, if we do have the time, could we go through the slides that you skipped earlier? Yes. Hang on here. That means I got to go back and do uh, share <laughs> sharing mode. I'm not used to this. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm not used to uh, all this this manipulation of Zoom. I just okay. Let me go back. To my slide deck here. And let me go to, yeah, this is the, uh, this is the slide here. Am I on? Is it on? Uh, okay, good. Yeah, I just wanted to summarize the profile of the modern self. And some of the characteristics we see today. One is expressive individualism. 
in that we find meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. So, and this um, type of thinking really forms the core of the modern self and personal identity, that it's driven by one's own internal feelings and desires, and they must be expressed in the public square. You know, we hear of uh, certain famous people who are homosexual and they sort of come out or they're out or they come out of the closet, so to speak, as they used to say. Um, so acting on your own feelings and desires is extremely important. That characterizes the modern self. One is um, a culture of authenticity that has happened. The importance of finding one's own identity and humanity and rejecting those being imposed from the outside. So to be authentic in yourself, we have to have this culture of authenticity where to have an identity, one has to have it that comes from what you create inside of you. And that identity needs to be affirmed by other people. Right? In other words, it has to be recognized by other people. Um, Charles Taylor, going back to him again, the Canadian philosopher, he wrote that one is a self among other selves. The self can never be described without reference to those who surround it. So selfhood is intuitive, but it's still shaped by the culture we live in. I, and the important point is identity requires recognition by another. And this leads to an interesting dilemma when it comes to the modern self. There is this aspiration and need for radical autonomy, but that goes up against the need to be affirmed and acknowledged and protected by others um, in, your, in your expression of that uh, identity that you're trying to purvey. So my identity is part of my autonomy that no one else imposes on me, yet I want my society to affirm my identity. And if it doesn't, then somehow I'm broken or I'm inauthentic or I'm unsafe. And that explains why many secularists today and those are certainly many types are imposing the recognition of things such as sexual orientation and gender ex expression in key elements of society. And that why they're act actively working to oppose those who dissent. So if society, <clears throat> excuse me, doesn't recognize and affirm their identities, they feel threatened and their, their, their aspect of self-worth is diminished. Okay, so that's all I had to say on, on, that, particular, on that particular slide. Stop sharing there. <clears throat> we got a question. Oh, sorry. If no one's going to jump in, can, can I? So, how, how does one? I mean, you've mentioned a few ideas of how we do it, but I'm concerned, especially about. I'm not concerned only about our uh, reaching others, although that is very, very difficult. Concerned especially about our kids who are receiving this uh, in tsunami. Uh, amounts uh, in university, school, uh, media, and so forth. How do we, I mean, so, so some of it sounds right. You know, if, if someone's feeling oppressed, um, I mean, certainly any, I mean, we, we learned of racial oppression, how some black people uh, had, had run into problems at the auto airport or whatever. So we, we want to oppose that. And and affirm that, I guess, affirm the problem. But how does one, you know, prevent the this very powerful philosophy from dragging our kids away, slaves? <laughs> wow. 
<clears throat> Randy, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd probably be a millionaire right now. I'd be on a lecture circuit <clears throat> promoting a book or something like that. Um, for, for, with regards to our kids, I think that the, one of the biggest things with regards to our children um, is we have to talk to them about it. Uh, I know with my kids, Carl and I, uh, we talk about these things to our kids around the dinner table. It's not something we particularly want to talk to them about, but we have to talk to them about it. We have to talk to them and show them how these worldviews uh, are faulty and how they let people down. And we have to talk about how the Christian worldview shows hope in that regard. Um, and this is referenced a, a question I've seen here that someone typed in. How is the Christian gospel good news for a culture consumed by secular humanism? Well, it's the Christian gospel is good news for secularism because it provides that sense of happiness and fulfillment that secular humanism simply cannot address or cannot provide. I mean, Sigmund Freud's dream of having that goal of leading a happy and good life, secular humanism will not deliver the goods in whatever form it presents itself in. Because the only way that human happiness and fulfillment can be achieved is if people reconcile themselves to God through Jesus Christ. That's where true happiness is. And if you talk with secular humanists who became Christians, they will tell you that. They will tell you that secular humanism has let them down. And they saw the gospel of Jesus Christ fulfilling that need that they couldn't find in all these things. Uh, one of the problems I find with secular humanism, especially when it comes to things such as this view of oppression and being oppressed, is that form of secular humanism lacks one critical thing, and that is reconciliation. The revolution, the conflict, the battle between the oppressed and the oppressor, as I mentioned before, never ends. Now, what kind of good news is that? You're constantly at war. There's no reconciliation. There is no sense of peace. There's no sense of really coming together. Everything is a conflict. And again, we see that in our society today. So uh, that, those are the kinds of goods that secular humanism delivers. And it's, unfortunately, it's a hopeless one. And we have to be aware of that. All right. Any other any other questions? Either text questions or um... Ed, you. Uh, this is Hannah. But you mentioned earlier critical race theory, um, yes. and how that is that is a big thing right now. So how do we meaningfully engage in conversations around that stuff, especially when it is popping up, and it is a very um, hot topic, I guess. Lots of emotions wrapped up in this. Yeah, that's, that's a hot topic, Hannah, and um, I didn't want to, I did, I did mention it, but I didn't want to go into details of it, because that in, <laughs> itself, that in itself is a whole seminar unto itself. And I have to confess that there, it, it is an interesting topic that I, the person I want to pursue, and I, got, I want to, to investigate it a bit more closely, but from the articles and essays that I've read from, from even some thought, from many thoughtful Christians is I, I don't see, I see critical race theory 
as something that separates people and something that does not resolve the problem of racism. Um, in the quotes that I've read from people who hold the critical race theory, it's, it's group A is bad, group B is not bad. Group A has to recognize that they're bad, which in some ways is like the Christian view of you know, being convicted of your sin, but group A can never be redeemed. And that's where I, I would say, sort of off the cuff, where critical race theory doesn't really provide answers to how human beings can be reconciled to one another. I think, if anything, it promotes this Marxist concept of continual conflict. Um, but I don't know, I'm, I'm going to do more reading on this whole topic. Uh, I don't know if we can do a, a seminar in the future on critical race theory. I don't know. We'll see. So anyway, thanks for that question, Anna. Um, another question we got here, are there elements of secular humanism that as Christians we can agree with, or is it all irredeemable? Yeah, there are aspects of secular humanism that as Christians we can agree with. And I, and, there, and I mentioned the whole aspect of the value and dignity of human beings. And as I mentioned before, secular humanism, most secular humanists really feel human rights are important and they feel that the human being is important. That's where you have the term human in secular humanist, humanism. And that is the common ground, I think that Christians can not only agree with secular humanist song, but also use that common ground to engage in further dialogue and even work with other secular humanists. Um, so that's, that's one very important aspect. Um, I think when it comes to things like um, modernism and it's, it's seeking after truth and having absolute truth is another aspect of common ground between Christian, Christian worldview and secular humanism. Now, it doesn't apply in the area of postmodernism. The postmodernists would say, no, no, there's no such thing as absolute truth. All truth is relative. That's, that's a different kettle of fish. But it's aspects like that that Christians can find um, elements of common ground with secular humanism. And I think that's, again, an important launching point for discussion between the Christian worldview and the secularist worldview. So, no, it's not all irredeemable. There are some redeemable parts of it for sure. And that's mainly because human beings are created in the image of God. And some of those elements of God, those characteristics of, of God, are still you know, painted within the corners of people's hearts, even though uh, they're not following Jesus Christ. Any other questions? Comments? Hi, um, can you hear me, Ed? It's Daniel. Yes. I had a question for you. Um, I'm just wondering, um, you may not be familiar uh, maybe with Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's kind of appeared on the scene in the last few years. I'm just wondering if you would think that he, he he's kind of become quite popular and, and he's mm -hmm. a lot of talks and he's published and stuff. If, if he's at all could be viewed as some kind of like a, um, you know, like a reaction or something to Second, humanistic trends, yeah, and some of the things that he he kind of advocates for. Yeah, I think I think so. I don't know much about Jordan Peterson. I've only sort of heard other people comment about him. Um, he's not a Christian, uh, but he's sympathetic to the Christian worldview. I've heard, and he has challenged some of the ideas and philosophies within 
secularism, but mainly in the progressive wing of secularism. He's, he's, he's really um, um, come out uh, against such people. And it's interesting, Jordan Peterson kind of represents, I think a growing group of secular liberals who, are, who find themselves in a battle royale with the progressive wing of secular humanism. Uh, so much so that they are, you know, at loggerheads with a lot of these people as a result of that. And I find it interesting when I see this conversation going on, uh, and, I've, and I've read some essays by people who are self-proclaimed liberals, who are to certainly uh, are totally abhor what's going on in the progressive wing of things, uh, and how the modern self and personal identity is taking off. It's interesting to see how it's like the chickens are coming home to roost in the whole secular humanistic system where people are taking it to such an extreme that even people within the movement are violently disagreeing with them. So, and I think Jordan Peterson is one of those people who's seriously questioning those kinds of things for sure. But I, I, I've never read any of his works. So I don't know much beyond what I've just mentioned about him. Uh, another written question here is, are there Christian theologians, cultural commentators who, who you would recommend if someone wants to do further reading and research on this topic. Yes, I would. In fact, much of the second half of my uh, presentation or my seminar is based on this book here by Carl Truman, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Very good book. If you wanna go into deeper detail about how Freud and all those guys influence the modern self today and, and secular humanism today. And he goes into greater detail and he mentions other people. Truman is a um, theologian. He's from the, um, from the he's, a, he's British, he lives in the United States and he's a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And his book came out in November. Um, there was a bunch of, of uh, Catholic uh, intellectuals that I follow on Twitter and they were raving about this book. So I said, oh, I'm going to buy this book. And it's, it's very good in the sense it gives you a very comprehensive uh, idea of, of things such as, well, how did the transgender movement, where did that come from? How did it explode so violently and quickly on our cultural stage? And Truman goes into very great detail of all that happened. And I tried to convey some of that in our seminar uh, this evening. So he's definitely one to, uh, to look out for and to, uh, to read about if you can find some of his, uh, some of his work. Um, another one, and I guess I should mention this, would be, and I just finished reading this book. It's by Ryan Anderson, and his book, When Harry Became Sally, is a very, very good analysis of the transgender movement. I just finished reading this book, and it is very good. He not only looks at transgenderism from uh, a psychological perspective, but also from a worldview perspective. You know, what are the what are the um, worldview ideas and beliefs that drive this certain perspective? Now, it's interesting, his book um, is banned by Amazon. Amazon was selling it because it came out in 2017, I believe. And a few months back, they took it off the shelves. And Ryan Anderson, the author, went to Amazon and asked, well, what's going on? Why'd you take my book off? And um, they said, well, it doesn't meet our policy requirements or something like this. So as soon as Amazon dropped it, I immediately ran out and buy my own copy because you just never know, you may not be able to get a hold of this. But I did manage to get a copy. And as I said, this book is a very good explanation if you're interested in finding out more 
about the transgender movement and about transgenderism in general and what is gen gender dysphoria, which leads to this. And he gives a very balanced and a very good critique of what's going on. There. So he's, he's another person I would recommend reading and following up on this whole broad subject. Any other questions, comments? If not, I'd like to thank everyone for your, for your patience. Um, so, I'm so, I apologize if I, if I seem a bit awkward in this presentation because I'm not used to speaking just in a micro, just at a, at a camera and not seeing people in the audience uh, to interact with. So, but that's the way it is, the way it is these days. So I, I thank you for your uh, patience in all of this. And I really uh, hope that uh, what we presented today, what I presented tonight uh, was informative and, and useful to you as well. So let me just uh, close our time with the word of prayer and uh, we'll, uh, we'll let you know. Father in heaven, we thank you that we are not left to our own devices. Not all the, even though the world is uh, raging around us, uh, we are thankful that Jesus Christ is uh, our anchor of stability through all of this. Help us to appreciate him more and to draw closer to him and may we truly continually find our identity firmly rooted in him. Uh, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much and uh, have a very good evening. Everybody.